0: in your Bibles to Judges chapter 1 with me this evening? Judges chapter 1. Four years ago, we looked at the book of Joshua and we saw a story of rags to riches. People who were oppressed coming out of Egypt, moving to a place of Great prominence taking over the land of Canaan for years had been settled by pagans and uh, that book of Joshua is just a great and exciting book of God's work among his people and through his people and if you remember the beginning of Joshua, it started with consecration. It started with people separating themselves for the purpose of God. Joshua said, "This book of the law is not going to depart from." from uh, my mouth, but, but I'm going to, to follow it all the days of my life. And, uh, and so, so his point was that here at the beginning, the way that we prepare for this conquest that is happening is through setting our part, ourselves apart, being ready for the service of our God. It's not through military tactics and all the sorts of different strategies like that, but actually just being willing to trust God. And so if we think about it that way, getting from a place of, from rags to riches starts with consecration for, for the people of Israel. The reverse is, is also going to be true. That is, if you want to move from a place of riches to rags, which is what we're going to see tonight, then you have to start setting yourself apart for the world, setting yourself apart for the things that are opposed to God. And so tonight, I want to begin a 23-week study in the book of Judges. Judges comes on the heels of the book of Joshua. Joshua is all about obedience and great success. We call it the conquest of Israel. We read about all these great victories that God has powerfully worked through the people and apart from the people to defeat their enemies. But Judges, instead of Uh, Victory and success, or obedience and success, Judges is about apostasy and failure. Apostasy and failure. As they begin to compromise with the Canaanite culture, as they disobey God time after time, it starts with things like partial obedience. And then it moves to total disobedience. The next thing you know, they are oppressed by their enemies. It's a book about apostasy and failure. The Canaanite culture was very appealing to Israel because of their power and their apparent freedom from restriction. It seemed as if they had the perfect life. They were in a great place of influence and power. And they could do whatever they wanted. They didn't have gods who were telling them what they ought to do. And so the people of Israel come along. And they don't completely wipe out the Canaanites. Instead, they allow some to remain. And the next thing they know, they know they're know they being influenced by them and actually uh, follow, following the same gods that they are. The period of the judges is a time of transition. It's a transition from two of the greatest leaders in Israel's history to a, to a time when they would be led by kings, who are those two greatest leaders that I'm talking about. Okay, Joshua, and then before him, another great leader 40 years before him, Moses. Okay, Caleb was a great leader as well. But I was thinking specifically of Joshua and Moses. So this is a time of transition. It kind of answers the question, how do we get from the time where we had these great leaders to a time where we have these kings, starting with Saul and then the great King David and then many other successive kings. I uh, think I told you it's chapter 1, but let's start in chapter 17. I just want to show you one of the key verses for the entire book. And if you've read through this book before, this this phrase has stood out to you because it's mentioned several times in the book. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. There's no king in Israel. Okay, so this is before the time of the kings. This is after the time of the leaders, where you had Moses and, and Joshua. But the leaders that God did send in this book are called judges. There are there are twelve of them we should think of them more like deliverers. Maybe that's a better way to, to think about them. Deliverers, rescuers. Their job was to rescue Israel from the oppression that was brought on because of their sin, because of their compromise. They needed someone to come along and rescue them from the consequences of their sin. And the way the book is structured is that the first two chapters is just an introduction into the book. Starts to show you some of the cycle that, that they go through. We'll talk about that here in just a second. And then the middle portion, chapters three through eighteen, is the main body of the text. It's the main content of the book. And it shows these cycles through these various deliverers, these various judges. There are twelve of them. Five of them are major and and seven of them are minor judges. They're not there's not a whole lot said about them. You can think of some of these if, even if you haven't read through this book. You know, people like Samson and Jephthah and, um, and Gideon and, uh, and Deborah. And so we're going to go through several of these and see what we can learn from, from their leadership, but, but also from the failure of the people. What can we learn from, from them as well? The last part of the book, chapters 19 and following, is just a conclusion or an epilogue. And in this book, starting specifically with chapter three, we're going to see a cycle that just repeats. One of the sermons that we have coming up, I, I just call the broken record, because that's the way that Israel is. They just and here's the cycle. Israel falls into sin, they become oppressed by their enemy, they cry out to God for rescue, for help. And then God sends a judge. God sends a deliverer to help them. Israel falls into sin. They they uh, they're oppressed by their enemies. They cry out to God for help, and then God sends a judge, and the cycle just keeps repeating. When the judge dies, guess what happens? The cycle starts back over. They fall back into sin, and so over and over again, we see this the same sorts of themes start to come up. That Israel is just so weak. They need a perfect deliverer. They need a perfect rescuer. Just some things about the book before we get into chapter one, which is, will be the focus of our uh, study tonight. But I want to give some introductory material here for the book as a whole, since this is the first time we're looking at it. Some people think that, the, that Samuel wrote this book, but it's unclear who wrote it because the text doesn't say, and neither does any other book of the Bible. So you, a lot of times we can get an indication, you know, the law of Moses. So, we know the five books of Moses. So, even though it might not say Moses wrote this book, we can find it in other texts of Scripture. Or like Paul says, I, Paul, you know, the Apostle of Christ to the church at... And so, we know who writes it. But here we don't know who writes it. Um, Many people think it's Samuel, uh, along with uh, the book of Ruth. He apparently wrote that one as well. But it's unclear. The time of the writing, Judges, was probably written written at the beginning of the monarchical period. That is the time of the kings. Because there's this constant reminder that there was no king in Israel. And the implication is that now there is a king in Israel while I'm writing this. Or while you're reading this, uh, Israel. But during that time, this period of the Judges, there was no king in Israel. Um The purpose of this book seems to be to provide a history. It it provides the connecting points between the time of the great leaders, Moses and Joshua, to the time of the king. So historically, it just fills in a gap for us so that we know what happened during that time. But further, Judges was written to show the consequences of disobedience and apostasy. If Joshua is all about obedience and success, Judges is all about disobedience and and failure. So it's helpful for us to see both sides of the coin. That that if we obey, that there is going to be some sort of success. It may not be immediate, you know, uh, financial or or physical well-being. But there is success that comes along with obedience. Do you believe that? It may not. We may not get rewarded for it in this lifetime. Many times our rewards are delayed till the next lifetime. But that's okay. We believe that God rewards those who obey. And so we see the converse here in this book that when we disobey, when we fall into apostasy, we should not be surprised when we fail, when there are failures in life. The theme, I think the best explanation of the theme comes from a man by the name of Don Howell Jr. He writes a book on leadership that's one of the best books I've written. written. I helped him write it. Um, One of the best books that I've read. It's called Servants of the Servant. And he just does a um, systematic study through some of the main leaders throughout the Scriptures, including Jesus and Paul. And uh, some of the leaders that he talks about is, are, are in the book of Judges. And, and in that section on the, the various judges that he covers, he argues that this is the theme of the book, and this is what I'm going to, to follow as we go through our study as well. It is this. God is the exclusive deliverer of israel god is the exclusive deliverer of israel and he delights to use weak people and flawed people to accomplish his purposes sounds very similar to what was going on in the book of genesis i'm reminded of our study in the book of genesis when you have all these flawed people Time after time, they fail God, and yet God still continues to accomplish His purpose through people who are weak and flawed. And this is what we're going to see in the Book of Judges. We have weak people like uh, you know in society's eyes, like Deborah, or just really weak people like Gideon, who just has very little faith. God's happy to use people like that to accomplish His purpose it goes along a lot with what we heard on Wednesday night from Pastor Albright. It's the kind of people that God uses. He's also willing to use flawed people. Flawed people like Jephthah and Samson. So God is the exclusive deliverer and He delights to use weak and flawed people to accomplish His purposes. That's what we're going to see in this book. And uh, I'm looking forward to studying it together with you. And I pray that God will strengthen our desire to follow Him more faithfully as a result turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Now that we've thought about the book of Judges as a whole, let's now focus on chapter 1. And uh, before we do that, we need to think about a few things that God had told them before. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Think back to Israel's history, their recent history. They had just recently seen some amazing things that God had done. By driving out the Canaanites for them. Sometimes it was done in a spectacular way. Can you think of a way it was done spectacularly? Jericho. Right? There was nothing that the people could boast about at the end of the day. All they did was walk around a building and blow a trumpet and shout. It was God who defeated that city for them. Um, or, you remember in Gibeon when the sun stood still? And there's some spectacular ways in which God delivered His people, but He also did it in some less spectacular ways. Instead of extraordinary ways, we would call it ordinary, like at Ai. When they were ambushing their enemies. And there's lots of other places where they were just supposed to do regular battle against people and God would, would bring about victory through their, their fighting. But the point is, is that Israel saw this. Israel was a part of this, and they had defeated all the major cities. And Joshua divided up the land towards the end of the book in chapters twelve through twenty. He divides up the land among the twelve tribes of Israel, and it must have been a great day. In fact, Israel reading back through those that portion of Joshua would have just uh, taken great joy to be reminded of how God had. Provide this land for them and for their ancestors. And, um, and even though they drove, God drove out and defeated for them or through them these great cities, there was much left to be done. They were supposed to drive out the remainder of the Canaanites. That was their responsibility. There were still some Canaanites remaining in the land in the smaller cities. So if we would think of it like if we wanted to defeat Michigan... We would take out the big cities. Now we have the stronghold. We have the capital. You know, Now there's still going to be some people throughout the land of Michigan, so to speak, and we're going to have to drive them out too. That's what was going on there in the land of Canaan. There's still people that are in the land. We need to, to, to remove them. That was Israel's responsibility. So how does, how does this happen? Well, we're going to see here that they have a responsibility to do that. But, but what's amazing is that Israel goes from a place of receiving a great inheritance, one that their fathers would have loved to have seen, but they couldn't. Because they disobeyed God. They, they lacked faith, didn't they? Remember when uh, Joshua and Caleb went in to spy out the land with ten other spies and they came back and the ten spies said, you know what, we're not going to be able to do this. And quickly, the crowd turned and said, yeah, you're right, we're not going to be able to do this. And Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we are. God is on our side. It was the only two of that generation that got to see the promised land. And for centuries, they had been talking about this land. And now, these people actually got to be in the land. That is, the children. And so their fathers would have loved to to be part of this land. They would have loved to see how God... Brought about all these victories. And so how do they go from a place to having, having the land conquered to squandering it all? That's what's going to happen here very quickly in the book of Judges. How do they go from a place of great inheritance to squandering it in just a few years after Joshua dies? How did Israel squander their inheritance? We start to get a glimpse into the answer When we look at their responsibility, Israel had a specific responsibility. So let's start in Deuteronomy 20 and I'll start to show you that and then we'll go to Joshua and I'll show you further. So Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. Here's Moses' command to the people of Israel. Once you get in the land, here's what you're supposed to do. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, you shall not leave anything Alive that breathes. You not, shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Okay, what would happen... What is Moses saying here before they even come to conquer any part of the land? What is Moses saying? If you don't drive every single Canaanite out, what's going to happen? What does it say in verse 18? You're going to do the detestable things that they did. You're going to follow their gods. You're going to become pagan like they are. So wipe them out completely, verse 16. Wipe them out completely. Now turn to Joshua Chapter seventeen. Here we come this is at the end of the, the conquest really. Conquest lasted for about seven years. And we come to the end of the conquest. The land um, is just about to be divided here, beginning in verse eight or in chapter eighteen and following. They know their responsibility because of Deuteronomy 20. Drive them all out. Kill them all. Don't let them serve you. That's not the goal. The goal is to kill them, to remove them. Otherwise, you'll become like them. Look at chapter 18. Uh, sorry, chapter 17, verse 12. Notice the dilemma that the tribe of Manasseh finds itself in. Then the sons of Joseph, jo- Joseph that's Manasseh, spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance since I am a numerous people and the Lord is thus far blessed? Joshua said to them, If you are numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself. They are in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim, uh, Ephraim is too narrow for you. The sons of uh, Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the valley Land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Beth Shean and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, so we, we have a, a dilemma. Look at verse 12. I, I should have started there. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when the sons of Israel became strong. They put the Canaanites to forced labor. That wasn't the, the goal. Look at the end of the verse. Verse 13. They did not drive them out completely. Israel... Putting them to forced labor? That's your own idea. God wanted you to drive them out. So they find themselves in a dilemma. We don't feel like we have enough land, Joshua. And Joshua says, you have plenty of land. Go clear out some of that forest space. Whoa, hold on a second. The, the, uh, the, um, the parasites live there. We're not going to go over there. What about the hill country? They're not going to do that. Canaanites are too strong there. Joshua said, that's your responsibility. We haven't finished the job yet. Look at verse uh, 16 again. The sons of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Bethshean and its towns and those who are in the valley. And Joshua said, verse 17, uh, Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh saying, you are a numerous... People, and you have great power, and you shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it, and to its farthest borders it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and they are strong. Notice what Joshua tells them. Verse 17, You are a numerous people, and you have great power. Was he talking about? Their own inherent power. You're really good at military battle. No, it was the promise that comes from chapter 4, verse 24, that the hand of the Lord Almighty is with them and He will drive them out. But they have a responsibility to do it, don't they? That no one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, chapter 1 of Joshua tells us. And so we start to see a glimpse into the the reason why Israel failed so quickly. But now Judges, takes it and puts it in hyperdrive. Turn to Judges chapter 1. And now we really get a glimpse. We really get the, the picture of why Israel lost their inheritance so quickly. And what we ought to learn this evening is that God expects and demands complete obedience. God expects and demands complete obedience. First, we see their failure to fully obey God in verses 1-15. through This is very close to fully obeying God, but they just give a little bit of disobedience. They they put a little bit of disobedience, just change it, God's responsibility for them, just a hair. Look at verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I in turn will will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek and Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev. That's the south, and in the lowland. And so Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. And now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. And they struck Shishai and and Ahimon and Talmai. Here we have a story, a record of events of Judah and Simeon. Joshua dies around 1390 B.C. And the people of Israel ask, you know, who's going to go up and fight the Canaanites? Who's going to drive them out? And God responds by saying that Judah will. And then look at verse 3. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted, we, allotted me that we might fight against the Canaanites. Now this may seem insignificant that Judah called for Simeon here. But look back at verse 2. Who did God say He was going to give the Canaanites. into to whose hand? Verse 2. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Not Judah and Simeon. And so, here we start to see a little chink in Judah's armor. They, they lack faith, don't they? God said that we would be able to win against the Canaanites. But let's just, for good measure, bring along this other clan, this other group of men who can fight. It's not what God said. So they fail to fully obey. They fail to fully put their trust in God. We may have all sorts of ideas of how to accomplish something, but God is not looking for sloppy obedience. Where is the faith in this response? We might say, Judah, you're so foolish. God told you who, was, who, who He was going to give into your hands and that He was going to give it into your hands. How could you fail Him here? And yet we can fall so easily into the same trap, can't we? We are good at mostly obeying God. You know, I I know God told me that I ought to be holy because He is holy. But what if instead of being holy completely, what if I'm just only mostly holy? You know, like when I'm around other people, wouldn't God be approved with that? Wouldn't God approve of that? What do you think? I you think God would approve of us being only mostly holy? Only mostly set apart for His purposes? Only mostly faithful to Him? Well, I ask you who are married tonight, how would you feel if your spouse was only mostly faithful to you? You know, for the most part, She's faithful to you, but you know, there is this sleeping around that goes on a little bit, but she's mostly faithful. Or, or you. Anyone else, you know, your parents. How do you think your mom would feel if your dad was only mostly faithful? You see, God is all about exclusive obedience and exclusive faithfulness. Total allegiance. Does he not deserve that? He does. So, we have this, this little bit of lack of faith here by Judah. And then, instead of killing all the inhabitants of the Canaanites, they spare one man. And instead of killing him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. His name is Adonai Bezek. He's the king of Bezek. Instead of killing him, they humiliate him. Effectively torture him. Rendering him, him unable to fight unable to escape. Now, what was the command from Deuteronomy 20? Right? It was to kill them, every single inhabitant. Man, woman, and child. And we could say, well, look at verse 7. At the end of the verse, it says He died. So, they did their job. He died. But no, they didn't kill Him. He may have died because... The text doesn't tell us why He died. He could have died because of loss of blood. He could have died because of an infection. But it wasn't Israel killing him. It seemed to be from some sort of natural causes or even from this torture. In verses 8 and following, they fight against Jerusalem and capture it. We're going to find out later that it's not a complete capture of Jerusalem. It's not going to be a complete capture until David comes around 400 years later. And they go after the hill country and the Negev. They don't completely wipe out the Canaanites there. Then in verses 11-15, through we have this interesting story about Caleb and his brother. Caleb here asks for help. He says in verse 12, The one who attacks Kiriath-sefer and captures it, I will give him my daughter. Verse 13, Othniel, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, so he gave him his daughter. Then it came about, verse 14, when she came to him, that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. And then she alighted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev, the south. Give me also springs of water. This is a wise thing on the part of Caleb's daughter who's now going to be given into marriage to Ophniel. She's now concerned about her family. And so she asks her father, Would you just give us some springs of water? And the text says in verse 15, that Caleb, at the end of the verse, Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs. Really describing just a, a wide range of springs. Not just one spring in the upper and one in the lower, but really in every place every, in between. Caleb gave her springs so that she could help provide for her family. She's like the Proverbs 31 woman who very graciously wants to care for her family. So we can kind of leave this first section, verses 1 through 15 feeling somewhat positively about the people of Israel. And while they don't you know, fully obey God, we can see that they're doing just fine. They're, they're defeating their enemies for the most part. There's some good acts of righteousness going on. But when we come to verse 16 and following, we see that it's no longer just you know, failure to fully obey God. Now it's starting to turn towards partial obedience. And eventually it will lead to, by the end of the chapter, total disobedience. So let's look at partial obedience in verses 16 through 26. Look at verse 16. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of the palms of the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad. And they went and lived with the people. And then Judah went with Simeon, his brother. And they struck the Canaanites living in Zephash and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its ter- territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Those are some of the Philistine cities there in verse 18. And then in verse 19, we have a partial defeat of the hill country. Now the Lord is with Judah and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Okay? Likely excuse. You know, the Lord is stronger than us. Can't, can't really defeat them fully. In verses 20 and 21, we have the tribe of Benjamin not able to drive out. Look at verse 21. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. Apparently, Benjamin was comfortable with the success that they received. That They killed many of them. They got the stronghold. They now have control of the area. But that wasn't their responsibility. That wasn't all of their responsibility. It was to drive them out completely. And they began to be comfortable with this sort of lifestyle. And they started to see that it's happening with some of their other brothers. That this is what they're doing, you know? In verses 22 through 26, some of Joseph's sons defeat Bethel. But instead of killing all of them, they have some spies that help them kill some of the enemies. And so they spare the spies' lives. They should have killed all of them. So what started out as failure to fully obey God in the first 15 verses turns to partial obedience. And when partial obedience comes, it's only a matter of time before there is total disobedience. Verses 27-36. Total disobedience. Notice verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bastian and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. In verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. What's going on here? Why would the author keep repeating the same phrase? He's trying to get us to see something. They missed their responsibility. They found it to be okay to only partially obey God. To disobey God. And we're not going to do all that God has told us to do, even though He's empowered us to do it. And so we're going to allow the Canaanites to live among us. We can live with that. We'll put them to forced labor, as we see with one of the tribes. And that we can use them as our servants. That's not what God told them to do. Look at verse 32. Many places the Canaanites lived among them. Look at the end of verse 30 first. So the Canaanites lived among them. The end of verse 29. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. But look at verse 32. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. Do you notice the difference there? There's a battle going on. They defeat them mostly, and the Canaanites still live among them. They live among them. They live among them. They didn't drive them out completely. They live among them. And then Asher? The Asherites lived among the Canaanites. They haven't even won the battle. In verses 34 and 36, we have a partial victory by the tribe of Dan. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, and in Shalabim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, we would expect them to kill them, to wipe them out. But here it says they became forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Does it feel like Israel is obeying God here? Or does it feel like Israel is giving in to the Canaanites? It's been a long road for Israel. I'm sure they were physically worn out from seven years of fighting against the Canaanites. And they wanted to finally just settle down. I mean, think about their history. It's been a long road. They had been oppressed by Egypt and, and they had been wandering in the wilderness. 400 years with, from the time of Egypt to the wilderness to the time of Canaan, they had been away from the, the their promised land. And now they finally receive what God has promised to them, only to squander it. Because they weren't willing to trust God to take them all the way to the end, were they? They weren't willing to finish the job. They weren't willing to totally obey God. They became satisfied with where they were. And this is going to lead to some great Failures and the life of Israel. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 because there's this great passage there. Deuteronomy chapter 8 where Moses warns Israel about the danger of forgetting God. Let me leave you with two points of application. Number 1. We like Israel are susceptible to squandering God's blessing. We, like Israel, are susceptible to squandering God's blessing. This passage here in Deuteronomy 8 is a passage where Moses warns them, don't forget God. It's a passage that seems to be unnecessary. I mean, who's going to forget all the great things that God has done for them? Particularly this future generation that that, that, that Moses is talking to in Deuteronomy. Right? These people are going to see some great acts of God. How could they possibly forget? Notice verse 10, Deuteronomy chapter 8. When you have eaten, that is in the land, and you are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Okay, so don't, don't forget God. In fact, remember to praise Him. For the great things. that, when you've eaten and and been satisfied, don't forget God. Instead, praise Him. And then look at verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. And how could they forget the Lord their God? Well, by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Was it possible for Israel to forget God after all the great things He would do for them? After giving them the land of Canaan? And we know from history that it is possible. In fact, that is exactly what happened. They got to a place where they were fat on the blessings of God and they stopped obeying God fully. Joshua, obedience, great success. Judges, disobedience, apostasy, and failure. Friends, is it possible for us to forget God? All the great things that He has done for us? Well, in one sense it is not, because the Spirit will overcome. Greater is He who is in us than he that is in the world. But but what about the next generation? Is it possible... That the next generation could forget God? Is it possible that the children in our church could forget God? Is it possible that our own children and grandchildren could live in infidelity and unbelief and idolatry and disobedience and under God's wrath because they had never seen firsthand who God is? They had never seen God's great works. They hadn't been reminded about them. Is that possible? Is it possible for our church to squander the inheritance that we have received. I'm not talking about a monetary inheritance. We've, we stand on the shoulders of great people who have gone before us for the last 74 years at this church, who have stood for the truth of the Scriptures and have left us in a place where we have a solid ground to stand upon. Is it possible that we could squander those, this inheritance, this blessing that we have as a church? Is it possible? Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't see anyone actively opposing us. Why should we expect the next generation to forget God? Friend, active op- opposition is not the reason for future failure. Active opposition is not the reason for future failure. As the great I- Irish statesman Edmund Burke once said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. For good men to do nothing. Our failure will not necessarily come because we have people who are actively opposed to what we're standing for and what we have stood for for 74 years. That's not where our failure will come, I believe. I think it will come from people who are standing still. It will come when we start to partially obey God. Eventually it will lead to total disobedience, it will lead to a generation of people who never saw the great works of God and who never were reminded about them. Friends, we are susceptible to squandering our inheritance. We're susceptible to squandering God's blessing. And so here's the second point of application. It is this. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. You may be tired. You may be tired of fighting in the, 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 the spiritual battles that you face from day to day. And that you have been fighting for years. But can I please encourage you tonight to keep on fighting? The Christian life is very much like the conquest of Canaan. There are times of unbelievable victory when we just stand on the other side and say, Wow, I can't believe God did that. That sin that so plagued me before is now not my master. And yes, I still fall into sin, but, 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 but that no longer has a grip on me like it used to. When I look at myself from ten years ago, God has changed me. And so we see these unbelievable times of victory. And then there are times of surprising Failure when we didn't expect it, we got a little proud like Moses says here. But friends, like Israel, God is on our side and He will have the victory in our lives and in our church. And the means by which He will do it is through people who will not stand still. Through people who will pursue holiness to the greatest degree. People who will not ask the question, what's the minimum I can do in order for God to be happy? But people who ask the question, what is the most I can do so that I can be in the the greatest place of blessing? Now, we need to recognize that we can't reach perfection. But God promises that He will take us to the very next level of glory as we are being changed by the Spirit. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We move from one level of glory to the next when we look into the mirror of God's Word. And it starts to shape us, to change us. In many ways, we are just like Israel. We are quick to forget God's power and promises and quick to partially obey. But on the other hand, we are unlike Israel because they only had the best they had was only a good earthly leader who would eventually die. For centuries, they would fail as as a people because they would follow leaders who would fail or they would succeed but then die. And so we're unlike Israel because we stand on this side of the cross with the perfect Deliverer who has come, the one... Redeemer that they were looking for. You know, all these leaders that they had were insufficient. They were finite. They were sinful. And so they were looking for a perfect deliverer, a perfect Redeemer. And that redeemer's come for us. And so we're unlike Israel in that way. This Redeemer has come. He has conquered death. He has ascended to heaven. And He has left us His Spirit so that we can, in a greater way, respond to God's Word in faith and obedience. We have very little excuse. Partial obedience is a path towards failure. Partial obedience is a path to failure, either for us or the next generation or both. God expects, God demands, God deserves full and complete obedience, doesn't He? So we have to guard very carefully The blessings that we have from God. And be careful not to squander them by standing still. Christian, keep fighting against sin. Keep fighting against temptation and the temptation to quit. Keep trusting in the final resurrection. Keep expressing your faith through constant prayer and complete obedience. Let's pray. Father, I wish it were enough for us to just hear one time that we have to be guarding ourselves against the temptation to quit. That just we would hear one time not to forget you, and that would be enough. But I'm thankful that your word has multiple reminders to us about not forgetting you. Because it is in our very sin nature. To get to a point in life, even in our Christian life, where we can become proud and look back on the successes that we've had and say, that was all me. And so it's good to be reminded about people who did that very thing and turned away from you. And turned the next generation away from you. Lord, we have a great responsibility here at this church to keep on fighting against the sin that comes into our lives and into our church. We have a great responsibility to fully obey You. Lord, we have a responsibility not to stand still. The life of a Christian is very tiring. It's, very, it's a very weary life. It's battle after battle. It seems to never end. But, Lord, we're thankful that we don't hope in this life only, but we hope in the life to come. We we are counting on the resurrection when we will be fully changed, when Jesus will reign as King. It will be clear who is the King. It will be clear who is on His side. Right now, it's not clear because there are so many deceivers out there. There's so many people who are Uh, disguising themselves as angels of light. Lord, help us not to give up. Help us not to compromise even in the smallest way of partially obeying You and thinking that maybe if we compartmentalize our lives and obey You in one area, then You would be happy. Help us to fully obey You, to give all that we have to You. Lord, You are worthy of all of our lives. You demand worshipers who have consecrated themselves to You. And we know that we can consecrate ourselves because You are consecrating us. You are sanctifying us. The work that You're doing. And so at the end, all we can say is, we are nothing but unworthy servants. We've only done what we've been told. Lord, may we come to the end having won, having finished the race, having fought the good fight, Give us the grace to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.